Chapter 4. Visions. This is what Tocasia saw. The power stone at the center of the room suddenly began to glow hotter, to consume itself with its own radiance. It shone as if a piece of the sun itself had been detached and set down among them. Instinctively, Tocasia flung her arms up in front of her to shield her eyes, but already the two brothers were nothing more than fuzzy silhouettes against the gem's radiance. She shouted at their names, but her voice was swallowed by the explosion. There was an explosion, though its sound was in wavelengths that she could not hear. It resounded through the length of the caverns and rattled every bone in her body. There was pressure, as if a great hand was pressing down upon her, then pressing through her, leaving her standing. There was heat, as if she had suddenly passed through a furnace. Then the heat was gone as well. And finally, there was a rush of air from behind her, as if the world was straining to fill the gap of what had been lost. It was the force of the blow from behind, unanticipated and unexpected, that knocked her to her knees. She stumbled to her feet, her ancient joints complaining, her eyes still seared by the brilliance of the power stone's emulation. The stone was no longer on its pedestal, and the deep humming of the cavern no longer resounded through her bones. So Cassia blinked back the brilliance. Slowly, her sight returned, first at the perimeter of her vision, then slowly returning to the center of her eyes. She blinked back a sheen of new-sprung tears, and with it the last bits of her blindness. The pedestal was empty. The power stone was gone. Both of the young men were on the floor, but already stirring. Neither had been hurt physically by the blast as far as she could tell, but they pulled themselves up like old men, careful not to shatter their own bones by rising. Then she noticed that the power stone was not gone. It had been split in two, and each of the brothers held half in his left hand. More of the lights came on in the cavern, and she heard the tramp of metal feet against stone. This is what Urza saw. He was reaching out to stop Mishra, but was too late. There was a brilliant flash that consumed them both. His last clear vision was of his brother's face, his expression surprised, his beard surrounding an open mouth. Shutting a curse or a warning, Urza could not hear him, and suddenly he was surrounded by the whiteness of the blast. Then he was somewhere else. He was floating, flying over a landscape that he had never seen before. The earth beneath them was made of cables of corroded metal, crossed and recrossed against themselves until they formed a thick woven mat. Huge gears broke through the metal landscape, turning slowly and straining against the surrounding cables. Copper-colored snakes moved among the mat, but Urza thought that they were instead more cables blindly seeking their path through the morass of woven wires. There were other great circular plates, gears turned sideways, as thick as Urza was tall and coated with a thick patina of corrosion. Urza noticed that the entire landscape was undulating slightly, like a living thing from the motion of cogs and wheels beneath. Hills formed around him, moving slowly, pushing the corroded gears relentlessly to his right. In that direction, west he thought, though in a shifting world, it was difficult to be sure. There was a reddish glow. Urza landed on one of the gears, and it carried him along as it moved. The mat of copper-colored cables snaked around him, but did not touch him. The landscape seemed to boil with metal snakes. There was a storm ahead, ebon clouds building against the darker surrounding. Blue lightning arched between the clouds, giving them definition. A wave of rain swept over the land. It tasted of oil, but it passed quickly as the shifting hills pushed Urza along. Warm steam leaked from beneath the cables, and there was a brief grinding noise. Then it too ceased. Before Urza, a great tower erupted in the landscape, ripping metal cables and gears as it did so. It was made of thick plates of heavy metal held together by man-sized bolts and covered with angular runes. It pistoned upward, and the gear upon which Urza stood rose and orbited as it shot up above the undulating hills. Then the tower retracted into the earth as quickly as it appeared, and the heaving landscape carried Urza forward. There was a sharp sound of insect wings, a thousand in number. The noise was all around, but the creatures were invisible to his eyes. Then, this sound faded as well. Now, Urza saw he was no longer alone. 
there were other beings standing on another moving disc, one larger than his own. These others were carefully building as they were carried along. They looked humanoid, dressed in radiant white robes from head to toe. Their faces were covered by white masks and their heads by white hoods. Urza concentrated, but they grew no more distinct. All he could see was that they were building something. For the first time, Urza became aware that he was dreaming. He should be in a cavern with his brother and mistress Tokasia, he realized. He held out his hand and counted his fingers. He had always heard that one should do this to determine if one was dreaming. He got the number of fingers, at least what he thought was the right number, but his flesh was translucent. He judged the experiment inconclusive. The fingers in white were moving more quickly now, and he saw that they were assembling pieces of a larger device made of bronze. It looked like one of the metal spiders at the foot of the cliff back in the waking world, but where he had left the ornithopter. This device was no wrecked artifact of another age. It towered over the white figures. If the dream spider was the same size as the wreckage they had seen, Urza determined and the figures were only slightly shorter than the average human. The dream spider was tall and made of thick plates of bronze-colored metal. Blue-white lightning sparked at the device's joints and it was held together by bolts as thick as Urza's forearm. The device had no head, but from the center of its back rose a large prominence topped by a cylinder. Urza thought of the catapults back in his own world and recognized the cylinder as a weapon. Looking at the dream spider, Urza saw not only its form, but its function. He saw the pylon-like legs and knew how they had been fastened together and how they would therefore have to move. He saw the prominence atop the creature's back and knew it had to be fitted to allow it to spin in any direction. He understood the heavy mass of overlapping plates that formed the creature's armor and knew how much power was needed to move a mass of that size. The figures in white were talking to each other now. They had seen Urza, but evidently did not know what to do about the interloper. Suddenly, Urza felt something heavy in his chest, pulsing like a second heart. He looked down. All his flesh was transparent now, almost without conscious thought. He reached inside himself and pulled out a large gemstone, glittering green, blue, red, white, and black. The colors overlapped one another, seeming to coexist in the same place. The edges of the stone were rough, and Urza knew half of it was missing. He raised the gem and showed it to the figures in white. It seemed sufficient. They immediately forgot about him and returned to their work. The red glow in the west was growing stronger now as the flying gear approached its destination. Looking around, Urza saw only small white robed figures on their own sidewise gears, each with his own device. Some of the machines were spiders, some were titanic statues, some seemed to be great elephants or oxen, all were made of heavy plates of reddish gold metal, and all were armed in the same manner as a spider. Now we saw the glow ahead came from a great foundry of the same type used to make swords and horseshoes. The furnace was made of rough iron and shaped like a monster's head. Long, curled horns framed a gaping mouth filled with tons of flickering flame. Urza knew he was a half a mile away from it, but even so, he could feel its heat. It could melt the flesh from his bones, he knew, had he any flesh. A great ramp of red tin metal led up to the monster furnace's mouth. The bronze-colored dream spider and the other bronze spiders were moving now, along with the elephants, oxen, and titans. The disc came to the rest of the foot of the long ramp, and the various constructs lurched forward, powered by their own internal engines. Steams and sparks leaped from their joints. The artificial creatures formed a pair of lines, one to either side of the ramp. Now the figures in white, the builders of these mighty constructs, began to move as well. Slowly, almost reluctantly, they inched up the ramp. As they moved, the cylindrical weapons atop the reddish-gold machines followed them, pacing their approach beneath their barrels. One of the figures nearest to Urza hesitated for a moment, then turned back. Or rather, it tried to. The nearest machine, the golden dream spider the figure had helped build, fired something from its turret. A beam of incandescent light sprang from the tip of the cylinder and cut down the fleeing figure. Urza saw the creature's yellowish bones clatter to the ground and roll to the foot of the ramp. The other figures in white paid no attention to the dead defector. Instead, they slowly made their way up the ramp, toward the flames, bending beneath the weapons of the gold artifacts. 
Urza tried to shout a warning, but all he could make was the sound of the smithies and ringing hammers. Some of the figures were melting now, while others burst into flame from the heat. Their companions urged, dragged, and hauled them forward until they reached the monstrous mouth of the furnace itself, and then they pitched themselves in. Urza screamed. His cries seemed to throw him back away from the monster furnace, away from the world of golden snakes and moving hillsides and beweaponed machines. The furnace's mouth diminished to a small reddish dot as he fled, and he felt something warm behind him. He turned toward the new sensation and woke on the floor of the chamber. He was clutching half of the power stone in his hand. In the distance, Urza heard the tromp of metal feet against stone. This is what Mishra saw. Urza lunged forward, and Mishra looked up at him, but by the time he saw his brother's face, stern and angry, the white glow had already consumed them both. All Mishra saw was Urza's scowl, and then he was someplace else. This was indoors, inside a great hallway. This was unlike the smooth halls bored through the mountain, for the walls seemed to be made of lizard skin, black and pliable. He touched one of the walls, and it flinched. Mishra could see the entire passage ripple, almost as if it were sleeping all around him. The air was thick and moist. The hallway extended ahead of him forever. He turned around. The hallway extended ahead of him forever. He turned around again. The hallway extended ahead of him forever. He turned around one last time and headed down the endless hallway. His foot crunched against something, and he stepped back. Beneath his feet was a small toy made of gold. It was in the shape of a human figure, and irrationally, Mishra wondered if Urza was somewhere near. And Tokasia. He remembered Tokasia had been with them just a moment ago. He looked at the figure, but it was no one he recognized. He inadvertently broken off the figure's arm, and the figure's face was transfixed in a scream. The floor head was littered with small, screaming figures. Some were humans, but there were elves and orcs, minotaurs and dwarves among them. He tried to move through them without stepping on them, but there were too many. Then he realized that even those figures that he was not stepping on wore screaming visages as well. Reassured that he was doing no additional damage, and the figurines were probably not alive, he pressed on, scattering the toys in his wake. Now there were alcoves on either side of him, each set with a dark mirror against the back. Misha stopped at the first one and saw a human form. No, a humanoid form. Naked. It seemed to twist as he looked at it, turning first into one race, then another, then a third. It was a statue, shaped from one dark stone, yet fluid. It reached the end of the series of transformations and began the sequence again. Misha passed to the second mirror and saw another figure. This one was wearing armor, or what seemed to be armor. As it shifted from one form to another, Misha realized the armor was part of the statue as well, perhaps even part of the creature that the statue represented. Misha felt a wave of excitement. Suddenly, he knew what the machines back in the cavern were about. They could transform shapes of flesh and stone into other things. They could improve themselves. They could build things. He rushed to the next mirror, ignoring the golden toys at his feet. This was another shape-changing statue, but it had more armor than the one he had seen previously. It had horns too, splaying across the top of its head like an antelope's, not outward like those of a minotaur. It changed shape more slowly, and Misha saw that the image's flesh had grown leathery, resembling the walls around him. Dark bones jutted from its flesh, and into the open air like dark spires of power. Misha passed to the next mirror. Here was but a single unchanging figure. Its flesh was black lizard skin, broken by the sharp bones that erupted from its flesh. Its face was narrow and wolf-like, and its open mouth was filled with razor-sharp teeth. Its eyes were closed, and atop its head a great pair of antelope horns reached impossibly backward. Around the horns was a nest of worm-like coils buried in the creature's skull. They streamed backward like blood-colored tresses. Misha stared at the creature in the dark mirror for a long time, waiting for it to change to another shape, but it remained an inert thing of black stone. Then the statue opened its eyes, and Misha took a step back. There were living eyes, soft, wet, leaking blood at the edges. The eyes blinked, and the brow above them furrowed. Suddenly, 
Misha was aware that he was watching not an image, but a living thing. And worse yet, that thing was watching him. The being raised a hand and touched its chest. Misha mirrored the action, touching his own chest. His fingers brushed against something smooth, and he looked down. Mounted in the center of his chest was a great gem, radiating a spectrum of colors. Forgetting the creature for a moment, he reached up and pulled the gemstone from his breast. It felt warm to touch, almost comforting. The great jewel was carved in glittering facets around half of its surface, but along one side, a larger piece had been broken off, leaving a ragged juncture behind. The creature reached up and touched its side of the mirror. Despite himself, Misha felt his own hand rise up in response, as if he were the image and the creature now the original. He pressed his hand forward, almost touching the glass itself. The demon of metal, bone, and leather smiled. Someone called his name. He was sure of it. Someone behind him called his name. He turned away from the mirror, from the dark creature behind it, suddenly caught up in a wave of brilliant white light, and woke on the floor of the chamber. He was clutching half of the power stone in his hand. In the distance, Misha heard the tromp of metal feet against stone. Tokasia stumbled toward the two brothers, who were slowly pulling themselves from the ground. Whatever they had done, the huge power stone had split in twain, and each brother held a portion of it. Unlike other cleave stones Tokasia found in the dig site, these gems retained their lambents and energy. They flickered with the power that still remained within. Each gem flashed with a range of colors, though Urza shone most often red, while Misha's glowed heavily green. Tokasia blinked and realized it was brighter in the chamber. The crystal plates along the ceiling were lighter now, and there were more flashes along the metal-plated walls. Urza was already at Misha's side. The younger brother shrugged off his elder's offer of aid and stood on his own. He rocked slightly as he stood, as if his legs were new things to him. Urza's face was pale as a ghost, the colors of the fractured power stone playing across it. What happened? He gasped. Tokasia looked at the two brothers. They seemed woozy, but relatively intact. The power stone exploded, she said. You've got the fragments. Misha pointed at his brother. It was his fault. I was trying to stop you, Urza snapped. Enough, shouted Tokasia, her voice echoing off the walls. Listen! Both young men stopped for a moment and heard the slow, rhythmic tread of metal feet against stone. Numerous and uniform, the footsteps were heavy and relentless, and they were getting closer. Shapes appeared at the far end of the chamber. Tokasia did not remember a door being there before the explosion. Perhaps there hadn't been. There was an opening now, she realized, and through it came half a dozen titanic shapes. Su Chi, the guardians of the Thran, with their lupine faces and backward-mounted knees. For all their hulking, twisted structure, they could move fast, though. They bore down on the trio. Flee! shouted Tokasia. No! said Urza. I think I can handle this. His gem seemed to glow brighter as he spoke, and he held the bauble in front of him. A single beam of ruby light shone from the edges of the stone and lanced across the room, bathing the six oversized mechanisms. They hesitated, drinking in the radiance. They moved forward again. They're moving faster! shouted Tokasia. Whatever you did made them stronger! Then we flee, said Urza. Misha raised his own stone, but Urza slapped his brother's arm down. We tried that, and it doesn't work. Don't make matters worse. He ran, following Tokasia. Misha raced behind them. All the stairs that they had descended were like cliffs now to be climbed again. Tokasia felt her muscles strain and cry out with each flight, and her bones felt as if they were made of stone. By the end of the third flight of stairs, Tokasia was leaning on Urza's shoulder for support. The Su Chi were slower on the steps, but the creatures took them two at a time and were untiring. Tokasia glanced over her shoulder. The Su Chi were catching up with them. At the top of the steps, Misha stopped, panting. Urza was in little better shape, and Tokasia felt as if she was going to pass out. 
Perhaps we could find something to push down. Block their path, wheezed Urza. Misha held up his stone again, but Urza shook his head, exhausted. Doesn't work. Makes them stronger. Tried that. Misha was panting as well, but he forced his words out. You tried with your stone. Let me try mine. Urza let out a shout, but the younger brother was faster. He raised the stone before him, and its rays arched down the steps. The light from this gem did not pass through the air in straight lines. Rather, it bent in arching curves tinged with a greenish glow. The light struck the lead Su Chi in mid-stride as they were climbing a step. The artifact, vigorous and healthy a moment before, now sagged noticeably, as if the vitality had been suddenly leached from it. It bent forward. The creature behind it was taken by surprise and slipped backward, taking two more with it as it fell. The three collapsed in a pile on the landing, and only two of the figures rose again. Didn't stop them, gasped Urza. Told you. Slow them down, snapped Mishra. Fight later, said Tokasya, clutching the front of her robes. Run now. Tokasya's chest felt as if it were on fire as they fled back down the corridors. Since there were no side passages, there was little chance of getting lost or of hiding. The crystalline plates along the ceiling were all illuminated, casting odd shadows as the explorers ran. Perhaps it was part of the guarding system for the Thran themselves, thought the old scholar. When someone entered and used the machines, the lights came on and the Suchi were roused from their slumber. In the alcoves they passed, Tokasi glimpsed other Thran artifacts. The machines struggled to mobilize themselves as well, but the passage of time was too great for them. A metal arm rose in mute protest as Urza, Mishra, and Tokasi passed. A lupine head of dark blue metal spun toward them and hissed. At one point, the lower torso of a Suchi, backward knees and all, lurched from behind its alcove, bereft of an upper body. Urza pushed Tokasia behind him, but Misha brought his stone up. A jade-green lance of power arched forward, and the remains of the creature exploded, the legs falling in different directions. They ran past the metal corpse. In the back of her mind, Tokasia discovered a moment of regret. They had not the time to examine the creature more thoroughly. The pursuing Suchi were out of sight, but the old scholar could still hear their clattering tread, the whir of the mechanisms within their chest, and the clank of their joints. Ahead, there was another glowing brightness. This one natural. They had reached the entrance and were safe. Urza held out an arm across the passage, catching both Tokasia and Misha, who let out a low curse. The older brother pointed with his other hand to the entrance. A shadow moved across the sand in front of the cavern's mouth. Something large was waiting for them. Tokasia looked back for a sign of the pursuing Suchi as both brothers crept forward. The rock was perched directly above the lip of the cavern, like an owl waiting for a rodent's hole for its prey to appear. Urza cursed. Let me try, said Misha, holding out a stone. This time, Urza did not stop him. Misha edged forward to get a clear shot at the rock with his stone. Urza stayed directly behind him. Misha held his half of the gem aloft, and the greenish arching light, visible even in the daylight outside, burst forward and streaked up toward the rock. The great bird let out a tremendous shriek. It took to flight, fluttering about a hundred yards away to a large rocky spur, where it settled again. The greenish race followed it, but did no additional damage. Fall. Damn you. Fall, muttered Misha through clenched teeth. You're weakening it, said Urza, but it's too big to fall. Too tough. Company coming, said Tokasia briefly. Far off in the distance was the clatter of the approaching Su Chi. Between the desert and the deep briny sea, Misha quoted an old desert saying. Urza stared at the remains of the metal spider's nest at the foot of the hill. Misha, take Tokasia and run for the ornithopter. Don't stop running until you get there. But the rock, began Mishra. Let the rock be my problem, said Urza. 
and leapt forward into the sunlight. Tokasia protested, but Misha had already grabbed her by the wrist and pulled her after him. Misha's fingers were like a vise around her arm, and she had little choice but to follow. The lights behind them already reflected off the blue metal of the Tzu-Chi skulls. The rock was aloft as soon as Urza appeared, swooping back on titanic wings to its perch over the cavern's mouth. Its vulture-like beak snaked down the snare of the young man, but Urza was too fast for it. In a moment, he was among the remnants of the bronze spiders that littered the base of the cliff. Tokasia was half-guided, half-dragged by Misha toward the ornithopter. Halfway there, they dodged a large boulder for cover. Two pairs of eyes looked around the boulder's edge for any sign of Urza. What is this fool doing? whispered Misha. They saw Urza dart among the half-buried wreckage of the spiders, then disappear. Tokasia put her hand to her chest and caught her breath. Urza was among the wrecked bronze metal spiders, she saw. His half of the stone seemed to function differently than Misha's gem. He's going to try to get one of those spiders to work, but why? The rest of her statement was lost in a titanic throbbing hum from beneath their feet, and one of the reddish-gold spiders lurched from its sandy tomb. The sand poured away from it like water, and Tokasia saw the spider's armor was shredded in a half-dozen places, and the creature was missing most of its forward legs. Through the peeled side plates, she could see Urza frantically pulling levers and pressing buttons. There was a reddish glow around him, giving him the steam that poured out of the beast's sides a hellish aura. He's powering it with a stone, said Mishra. He's fitted his stone into the machine. It must make artifacts stronger. No, the stone is in his hand, corrected Tokasia. But you're right. He's using the stone to make the machine more powerful, to enhance whatever power it has. Whatever, grunted Mishra, pointing toward the opening. He's running out of time. Look. At the entrance to the cavern were the remaining Su Chi, lurching into the sunlight. The turret on the spider's back gave a high-pitched metallic rasp as it spun on grit-filled clocks and brought about a long, dangerous-looking barrel. Tokasia knew at once it was a weapon. The rock screeched and leapt forth to pit the tasty morsel from its shell like a seagull eating a crab. Tokasia heard Urza say something unintelligible, and the barrel spat flame. The resounding thunder of the weapon as it fired rattled through the canyon of Koilos. The flame caught the rock in the center of its chest, igniting its feathers and engulfing its body in flames. The great winged beast tried to fly, but the fire was insidious, creeping along the rock's wings and setting them alight as the creature raised them. For an instant, the rock became the phoenix of Falaji legend, bathed in flame, but instead of rising like the mythical bird, the rock fell, plummeting into the canyon floor below. The great bird fell directly in front of the cavern mouth where the Suchi now stood. The weakened creatures had time to look up and Tokasa heard a sharp metallic whining noise that might have been a scream. Then the massive body of the flaming rock smashed down on them, crushing them utterly. There was another screech. This one sharper, more high-pitched. It came from the rusted and torn metal spider with which Urza had defeated their opponents. The steam that had surrounded the craft now became black smoke. Flames and sparks lit the craft's framework. Urza climbed loose of the device and was running. Tokasia noticed he cradled the reddish gem against its chest. The whining noise from the spire became higher. It reached the pits that almost split Tokasia's brain. Then, with a crescendo of thunder, the metal spider exploded. The noise of the blast reverberated from the cliff sides and was answered a few seconds later by echoes farther up the canyon. Urza staggered up to the others. Tokasia checked the cavern's entrance, but all that was visible were the smoking remains of the rock. That takes care of that, said Urza. His face and hair were streaked with soot and he smelled of burnt leather and metal. You were lucky, said Misha with a frown. We were all lucky, said Tokasia. Lucky to find this place. Lucky to escape the rock. Lucky to escape the caverns without perishing. Now let us be sufficiently lucky to get back home. You were lucky, repeated Misha to his brother. 
Luck had nothing to do with it, replied Urza, a surly note in his voice. I thought I knew what those spider things did, and had the power to make a difference. It was fast planning, perhaps, but not luck. You had no idea, pressed Misha. You accidentally made the Guardian stronger with the power of the stone. One learns from one's mistakes, said Urza, shrugging. At least I do. You keep making new mistakes all the time. Boys, cautioned Tokasia, this isn't the time for this. I beat the Tsuchi with my stone, snapped Misha. You blew up the crystal in the first place, reposted Urza. I did not. I did not touch anything, yelled Misha. That was you. Hold, shouted Tokasia, stepping between the two young men. We can argue about this once we get aloft. For the moment, we need to repair the Onothopter and get back. She mentioned with her head toward the smoldering remains of the rock. We don't know if that bird was a solitary or one of a larger family. Tokasia turned away from the pair. She wondered if there was something among the debris she could use as a walking stick. In the flight from the caverns, she had lost hers, and she could feel the muscles in her legs cramping from overuse. She looked forward to a long rest after this adventure. Behind her, none of the brothers moved. Tokasia turned and said, Today, if you don't mind. Both brothers, she noticed, looked as if steam were going to pour from their eyes. In a moment, said Urza. But first, give. He held in his right hand. His left still clutched the red glowing gem. What? asked Misha, holding his own stone to his chest. The stone, returned Urza. Give it to me. Perhaps we could fit the pieces back together. Misha held the stone tighter and Tokasi could swear she saw the stone flicker, as yellow-green as Cat's eyes, in his hand. No, he said. His face was set in a deep scowl. There's a chance we could restore it, said Urza crossly. Good, snapped Misha. Give me yours. Urza's face grew longer. I can't. You might break it. I don't break things, said Misha hotly. His voice was shrill. To Tokasi, it seemed on the verge of breaking as had done several years before during his adolescence. You're the one who always thinks you know everything, he continued. But you always blame me. Well, you're not as smart as you think you are. Everyone knows that. I know better because I'm older, said Urza coldly. Then you know I don't want to give up my stone, retorted his brother. If you want to fit it together, give me yours, Master High and Mighty. Too good for the rest of us. Show me you're all wise, brother. Give me your stone. You want it? snarled Urza. Fine. Take it then. You always take things that aren't yours. Tokasia started to shout, but it was too late. Urza's hand lashed out, the stone still gripped tightly in his fist. Misha stepped forward, directly into Urza's punch. The gem connected with the younger brother's forehead, and he went down in a heap. Urza leapt forward, kneeling over the fallen form of his brother. I'm sorry, Misha. I didn't mean to hit you. Misha had already pushed himself up on his elbows and was trying to back away. Get away from me! Damn you! Tokasia pulled on Urza's shoulder. Get up! You know better! She snarled. Her temper was frayed to the breaking point. You're always saying you're the older and smarter one! She rapped out. Well, look at what you've done! Urza started to speak, then looked at his brother. The gem had cut Misha's face, and crimson blood already welled in the wound at his temple. Urza looked at Tokasia again. I, I, I'm sorry, he stammered. He held out his empty hand to Mishra. I didn't mean to. I'm sorry. Mishra lashed out, knocking away Urza's hand. Go away. I don't need your help. Tokasia started to speak. Now, Mishra, 
Your brother is trying... And I don't need you to explain things away for him, either, Mitra interrupted. I'll be fine. He turned to his brother. The stone is mine. You have one of your own. Tokasia felt her insides melting with anger. Both young men were stupid, pig-headed fools. She had no time for this. She breathed heavily, controlling her temper by an act of will. Fine, at last. Urza, you tend to the strut on the ornithopter. Mitra, check the remains of the rock to see if any of the Suji guardians survive. Shout if any do. Neither brother moved, and Tokasia put steel in her voice. Now, children. Both turned in their task, but Tokasia noticed that each glowered at the other as if they were rival dogs. The trip back to Tokasia's camp was made in moody silence, and they flew into the night to avoid having to camp again. Neither brother spoke more than three words at a time to each other. They confined themselves to practical subjects, such as the way the damaged wing was handling, the weather ahead, and the present course of the ornithopter. Neither spoke about the secret heart of the Thran, the rock, or their flight. Tokasia realized that more than the power stone had been shattered that day.